We'll be reading uh, from Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 23. And we'll struggle through this together. <laughs> the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Methathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Methathiah, the son of Semei, the son of Joseph, <laughs> the son of Judah, the son of Johannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adah, the son of Kosan, the son of Elmadan, the son of Er, the son of Jose, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathah, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Manan, the son of Melathoth, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amidadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Reug, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalala, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Dear Lord, um, please prepare our hearts to hear and understand the message. Use your Holy Spirit to work and change us. Amen. <laughs> Well, it should be obvious this morning we are going to consider uh, the family tree of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> we are going to answer the question, uh, why did God put such a long list of names, uh, the Philip nailed, uh, in the Bible? Why do that? Why put the huge list of names in the Bible? And truth is, God didn't just do it once, he did it twice, right? Uh, he does it in Matthew, uh, right at the beginning of Matthew, and he does it here in Luke chapter 3. So why does Matthew begin his, begin his gospel with the genealogy, and why does Luke have it, and why does he put it where he puts it? Uh, if you remember, as we're making our way through uh, the gospel of Luke, that John the Baptist has been preparing the way uh, for the Messiah, uh, proclaiming uh, the baptism of repentance and then, Lord willing, next week we'll jump to Luke chapter 4. And in Luke 4, you'll see uh, that Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. So in between those two events, uh, you have this genealogy. And it seems to interrupt the flow because Jesus has been baptized. He stepped onto center stage, so to speak. He's empowered by the Spirit. He's uh, loved by the Father. He's ready for earthly ministry. 
And then, in, in, again, in chapter 4, uh, Jesus is tempted by Satan and overcomes him. And then in the middle of that, Luke throws in <clears throat> this genealogy. And the question is, why? Why did the Holy Spirit decide to have this in uh, the canon, the 66 books of the Bible? And why did the Holy Spirit have Luke put it where Luke put it? And maybe another thing you're wrestling with this morning is, what can I possibly learn from this for my Christian life? How is this going to help me this week uh, as I seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Why, why is this in here, and why, oh why, Pastor Andrew, are you preaching on it? Maybe you're thinking that. Uh, maybe you're, you're wrestling with that this morning. And, and actually, I would say to you, and I, I hope you'll see at the, at the end of this message, that there's actually quite a bit we can learn from this. And there's actually quite a bit here that will help you in your walk with the Lord. And as weird as it might sound to you, I'm actually pretty excited uh, to preach uh, from uh, Jesus' family tree this morning, from this strange list of names, many of which are very, very foreign to us. I'm excited about that. Because it gives me an opportunity to proclaim the sufficiency of God's Word. And I'm excited about that uh, because I'm deeply persuaded, as, as I hope and trust each one of you are, that the Scriptures, each and every word, is God-breathed. And not just God-breathed, but inerrant, which is to say, without error. And because that is true... That's why we preach the way that we preach, what is commonly known as expositional or expository preaching. Expositional preaching is a commitment to God's Word uh, to let God's voice speak, uh, to make the main point of the text the main point of the sermon. Again, we believe the Scriptures are God-breathed and the Scriptures are without error. So when you take those two truths together and combine them, God-breathed and inerrant, what that means is that every word, and again, not just the word, but the syntax and the context and the grammar, all of it, every jot and tittle as, as we read in Matthew chapter 5, it all matters. And none of it is random. None of it uh, are we free to play with or change with or, or skip over. All of this is God's voice to us, uh, perfectly uh, transmitted uh, by the Spirit uh, through human authors. So I would say to you this morning that, that that fundamental belief in the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture demands expository preaching. It demands line by line, verse by verse, preaching. It's my task as a preacher to preach the mind of God as perfectly revealed in the Word of God. And I would say to you this morning that a lot of preaching out there is weightless. It's without substance. It's superficial. And I would say that because so much so-called preaching out there is not based on God's Word, but is based on man's ever-shifting, ever-changing opinion and culture. So biblical expository preaching carries authority because it stands on God's Word. And you should all be able to say, when I'm done preaching, you should be able to look at your text and say, 
yeah, I see how Pastor Andrew got that. And if you can't say that, I didn't do my job. Expository preaching is just simply a commitment to letting God's voice be heard as he has sovereignly and graciously given it to us in the scriptures. I would also say that inerrancy and inspiration demands the careful study of all of God's word. Inerrancy, the fact that God's word is without scripture, uh, means we are not free to kind of skip around, that all of it is profitable, all of it is given by God for your spiritual growth and benefits, even the 77 names uh, in Jesus' family tree in Luke chapter 3. So this sermon is my heartfelt plea, uh, my heartfelt cry, don't neglect the genealogies. Don't skip over the genealogies. Don't, don't brush over them. Instead, think hard on them. Remember, God didn't waste ink when he had them put this in. God wasn't trying to achieve a certain amount of pages, you know, or reach a quota. Uh, God has this in here for our spiritual benefit. God, in his infinite wisdom, put him in there to equip us and mature us. And I, I want you to hear this, please. There is more value in those 77 names that Philip just read than there is in anything you heard in the news this morning or anything you read in the paper this morning, or we'll read later this week, this is more authoritative, is more powerful, more important than any of that. And so it's my joy uh, to, to expound upon it this morning. It's my joy to expound upon it and boast in Jesus. You'll see all the way through it. Jesus is the theme. In fact, the big theme all the way through this message is Jesus is everything you need. The genealogy brings that out in a powerful way, that Jesus is the sum total of everything you need. And the path moving forward, first I'm going to start with trying to untangle some knots in Jesus' tree, family tree. We're going to answer three questions, and then after that we're going to explore what does this genealogy teach us about God, what does it teach us about Jesus, and what does it teach us about us. So point number one this morning, untangling some knots in Jesus' family tree. And I just want to quickly answer three questions that often come up. Uh, the first question that often comes up is, why are genealogies even in the Bible? Why are they in the Bible? And quite frankly, uh, they're in the Bible because they are practical. They were very important for practical reasons uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, so, for example, they would use genealogies when they would buy and sell land. So if you ever read through or have read through Ezra and Nehemiah, remember in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a very long list of names. And Ezra and Nehemiah are recounting the Jewish exiles who are returning uh, from captivity back to the promised land. And what they are doing, why they have that list of names there, is because they designated land based on your tribe. So they had to determine what tribe you were from to know what land was yours. Uh, it was also, genealogies were also used in determining the priesthood. Are you from the tribe of Levi? And I think we know that genealogies were used to prove or to demonstrate the right to ascend the throne. Are you or are you not a son of David? Uh, so for the Jewish nation, genealogies were very, very practical. The second question that sometimes comes up is why are the genealogies so different? Did you know they were different? If you were to take a moment and read Matthew chapter 1 and then compare it 
to Luke chapter three, and those two genealogies, those family trees of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would see that they are very different. They are very different. The question is why, and, and some of those differences is, are, are, are simple, some of them are much more complex. But Matthew's genealogy, his genealogy is right at the beginning of the gospel. Luke's is not, as we know. It's, it's smack in between uh, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. Well, Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus and works backward, not to Abraham, but Adam, even God himself. And so it's different in that way. As you look at the one in Matthew, maybe later today or later this week, you would see that Matthew deliberately arranges his genealogy in three sets of 14. And Matthew has 41 names. Luke appears to have 11 groups of seven and totals to 78 names. That's a lot more names. So there are differences between them. And of course, those differences uh, cause some people to stand up and say, well, you see, the Bible clearly has mistakes in it. The Bible's wrong. We shouldn't trust the Bible. But I would say, I would dare to venture, if any of you have ever done genealogy, or you know someone who has, I think if you would do that, if you talk to someone who does that, you would find out that in every family tree, every genealogy, there's something that makes them stop and scratch their head and go, I don't know what to do with that. How did that happen? Uh, how is this person this person? And I think if we all look at our genealogies, there are things that are difficult, maybe even more complex than the issue that's before us this morning. So for those of us who are persuaded of the inerrancy of Scripture and persuaded that Scripture is God-breathed, there are three basic approaches that are taken uh, to figure out why Matthew and Luke's genealogy are different. Uh, the first approach has been the one that historically the church has followed for roughly 1,800 years. Uh, and it's the position uh, that when you look at the genealogies uh, that Joseph and what's happening is that in Joseph's family, there must have been a Levite marriage. You remember a Levite marriage. In a Levite marriage, a brother who dies without having a son, his brother is allowed to marry his widow, and if they have a child together, that child is considered the son of the deceased brother. That's a Levite marriage. And many things, that's what's happening in our text. So that's why when you look at Matthew's genealogy, it provides Joseph's line through Jacob. But when you look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 23, it doesn't put it through Jacob. It puts it through the son of Heli. Another option in why those genealogies are different and much more popular of late is, is, the, is the thinking that uh, both Matthew and Luke are tracing Joseph's genealogy, but they're different because Luke gives the physical descent of Joseph's family, while Matthew is only bothered to give the legal or royal descent of Joseph, Joseph's family. In other words, Matthew's trying to show you who are the Davidic kings in the line of Joseph. 
Luke isn't so concerned about that. Matthew's writing primarily to the Jews. Luke is writing primarily to all of humanity. He's, remember Theophilus, that you might know, that you might be assured. And so Luke puts the emphasis on not just the kings that come out of Joseph's line, but the actual physical lineage through Jacob. That's one option, or through Joseph. <clears throat> the third option is to see Matthew tracing Joseph's genealogy, but Luke is tracing Mary's line. That's the third option. Matthew is tracing Joseph's family line. Luke is tracing Mary's family line. That's the line, or that's the view that I personally uh, am inclined towards. If you have strong opinions and want to disagree with me on that, that's wonderful. I'll still let you take me out for dinner and we'll have good conversation. Uh, it's not an issue to die on, is it? Uh, but the reason why I'm inclined to see Luke uh, trying to trace the line through Mary is because of verse 23. Verse 23, says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, and I love this, being the son, as was supposed in parentheses, of Joseph, the son of Heli. I think when he does that, when he puts in that phrase in parentheses, as was supposed, he's clearly making reference to the virgin birth. He's clearly making reference uh, that, that Joseph was not the physical father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's flashing his theological headlights at us to say, look, I'm not tracing this through Joseph because he wasn't really the physical father. I'm tracing this through Mary, through whom he was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Whatever the right answer is, maybe it's, maybe it's not any of those. Maybe there's some other option that, that, that's out there that hasn't been discovered yet. Unfortunately, we don't have the record of all these genealogies. They were all burned and lost in AD 70. But we have the scriptures here, and how do we compare them? How do we understand? How do we re relate them? But whatever the answer is, what you can see is there is absolutely no reason to just throw the Bible out because of this difficulty. What you can see is that the Bible still has veracity. As I said, if you were to study your family line, I think you would encounter some pretty perplexing mysteries just like you do with this one. Let's, let's, listen, please hear this. No one here denies the Bible has difficulties. There are things in the Bible that are difficult and sometimes difficult to reconcile. What we do deny is that the Bible has errors. And there's a big difference between those two. And just because the Bible has difficulties like the one before us this morning doesn't mean we just throw the whole thing out and forget about it. Uh, not, I'm not much for eating fish. I don't know if I'm allowed to live in Orangeville and not be much for eating fish, uh, but that's, that's where it's at. My wife, however, loves to eat fish. That's my saving grace. But I, what I do know is when you have a plate with fish, there's usually bones in it. Yes? And when you eat fish you don't throw the whole fish out because of a few bones, right? And so same with the Word of God. There might be a few difficulties, a few bones to kind of work around, to pick around, but we don't throw the whole thing out just because of those difficulties. And if I can say a word about evangelism here, there are those <clears throat> all around us who have objections to the Bible, who believe the Bible is just riddled with contradictions and errors and mistakes. And 
What they've never heard, most likely, is someone who's tried to come alongside them and answer some of those questions. And so I think there's a call here for evangelism from this genealogy uh, for us to not be afraid of people with questions about God's Word. And don't be afraid when people point out some of the difficulties in God's Word. Instead, see that as an opportunity to love them, to care for them, to study God's Word, and seek to answer those questions to the best of your ability and pray for them. Uh, Do you know people who have those objections? Are you trying to answer them? Are you trying to help them? Are you trying to give an answer for the Scriptures? The third question as we try and untangle the genealogy, and hopefully you're bearing with me, but the third question is this. Why does Luke put it where Luke puts it? Right? Why does he put it right smack in between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' uh, temptation? And actually, you guys know I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. This fascinates me, and I think it's pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, Jesus is baptized, which attests to his sonship, right? God the Father says in, in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So the baptism attests that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the King. And then right after the genealogy is Jesus' temptation and Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness, once again proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who he says he is. And right in between that, these, those two events, is the genealogy. But notice, you got to notice, and again, this is inerrancy, right? Notice where the genealogy ends. In verse 38, the genealogy ends by saying, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of who? Adam. And then right after that, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, who is the son of Adam, goes into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by Satan. Well, there's another Adam who was tempted by Satan right? Adam, the first Adam, was tempted by Satan, and he fell. He failed. And he had every reason not to. He's surrounded by the lush garden and all the promises and the Word of God, and yet he's tempted by Satan, and he falls into sin and takes all humanity with him. But here comes another son of Adam, And he's not walking into the garden, he's walking into the wilderness. He has everything against him when it comes to facing the onslaught and the temptation of Satan. But this son of Adam, he secedes. And that's the significance of of putting that genealogy, as part of the significance of putting that genealogy between his baptism and his temptation. The scriptures are trying to help us see that Jesus is the Messiah, The baptism demonstrates that Jesus has the Father's blessing. The genealogy shows us Jesus has the right genealogy. And the temptation shows us he has the godly character. In every way we are being shown, Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. That's pretty neat. Again, it's just what I love about the inerrancy of Scripture. It's all there in order, on purpose, so we can think through that and and see some of those implications. So, what does the genealogy teach us about God? 
And then what does it teach us about Jesus? And what does it teach us about ourselves? What does it teach us about God? Well, it teaches us that God is sovereign over the events of history. You can see that as you make your way and think your way through the genealogy. In fact, you can think of this genealogy as a, a sort of summary of the whole story of humanity. And a summary of the whole story of the Bible. And right from the beginning with Adam, God was sovereign. And God was in control of human history. Right from the beginning, God was in the business of establishing his people, creating covenants with his people, making promises with his people, and orchestrating events until it all climaxes in his son, the second Adam, the true Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a powerful testimony to the faithfulness of God. And I'm sure those living through it, they didn't so much think of it that way, right? When you're, when you're living through history, you don't normally think, oh, this is history. But what this, what this does for us, what this genealogy does for us, these, these 77, 78 names, and there's some pretty, some pretty crazy characters in there, what we see with all those names is God was working in the lives of each one of them. And God was working through each one of them. And he was doing all that to orchestrate events uh, to bring his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just simply looking at the genealogy should give us so much hope and encouragement. Uh, I can't remember if it was Matthew or Andrew talked about trials and hardships and how do we know that God's in control. The genealogy in part is how we know that God is in control. We're able to read through these lists of names and, and all the different uh, things that happened in their lives and we're able to see, though it looked confusing and though it looked messy, that God was orchestrating all things uh, to his intended purpose, uh, to his son. So the genealogy teaches us that, yes? That God is sovereign over all things. What does the genealogy teach us about Jesus? Well, number one, it teaches us that Jesus is a real person. The genealogy teaches us that Jesus is a real person. His humanity is emphasized all the way through. It is showing us that Jesus is not a myth. He's not a story. He's not some made-up character. He's flesh and blood. He's, he's bone of our bones. He's human. He had a father and a grandfather and a great-grandfather. And you can go back on for many generations all the way back to Adam himself. Jesus was real. He was a real person. If you remember, it was a month or two back, uh, Paul Davis was here, uh, and he's the, the head president of ABWE, which stands for Associations of ba Association of Baptists for Worldwide Evangelism. I don't know what it is with Baptists and acronyms. We've got a lot of them. It's hard to keep track of all of them. But ABWE is, is the Association of Baptists for Worldwide Evangelism. And if you remember, while he was here, he shared about an unreached people group, the Wolof people, W-O-L-O-F, the Wolof people in the Gambia. Uh, and I was very intrigued by that. Uh, in fact, I was so intrigued by that, I actually studied them, I researched them, I wrote a paper about them, and it's my prayer that we as a church would consider uh, bringing them on and supporting them and, and, and helping partner with those who are seeking to get the gospel to them. Uh, but I have a, 
particular interest in it just because I have a strong heartbeat for what's known the missiological term of unreached people groups. Now, unreached people groups, that does not mean people who are unreached, which is to say they've, that they, they live in an area like this, but they're still lost in their sin. That's not an unreached people group. An unreached people group is, is a people group where there's little to no uh, gospel activity in their corner of the world. That there's no gospel preaching church and there's most likely no scripture in their language. They, they have no access to the gospel as a people. That's an unreached people group. And there are billions of them, population-wise. The world of people are one out of many, 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 many. And if you remember, while Paul Davis was here, he, he talked about them, and these unreached people group, the Wolof, who have no access or little to no access to the gospel. I share that because in my, my research, I came across a man named Alex Haley. Maybe you know him. He, he wrote a book called Roots. He actually traveled to the Gambia to discover where his ancestors came from. And if you don't know, the Gambia was once the heartbeat of slave slavery. In fact, in 300 years, they shipped out over 3 million slaves from the Gambia. And so Alex Haley goes there to find out more about that. And one day he sits down with a local historian. And that man could recite the men of, of his tribe going back several centuries. That's remarkable. The man sat there and would go through the whole tribe uh, for many, many centuries back. He would say, then it happened, so-and-so married so-and-so, and and they had a son, and such-and-such a year, he was taken away and never seen again. And at one point, Alex asked, well, what was the name of the boy? And the man knows. He says the name of the boy was Kunta Kinta. The year was 1752. And Haley shares it was one of his ancestors taken into slavery. And so Alex has this moment, and he says, I realized all of a sudden that I had roots. I realized all of a sudden that my family came from somewhere. I have history. I share that because that's what this genealogy is doing. This genealogy is showing you that Jesus has roots. It's showing you that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. He's not some weird guy saying weird things. He has history. He belongs. He belongs. He's a real person. And we shouldn't shortchange that. Uh, there's a Bible translator in, in Papua New Guinea who started to translate Matthew's gospel. And I share with you that Matthew's gospel begins with, jo- with Jesus' genealogy. And so he's like, well, I don't think they're going to care about that. So he skips the first chapter in his translation work for Matthew. And he's working with some of the local people in Papua New Guinea. They're translating the word of God. It's going well. Eventually, they get all the way through Matthew 28. So they've translated everything but Matthew chapter 1. And so he's kind of like, well, I guess we should do Matthew 1 so we complete the process. And they begin studying through Matthew chapter 1. And some of the Papua New Guinea people who are working with him start getting really excited. He doesn't understand why. And he asks them, why why are you getting so excited? Because all all they were doing was trying to wrestle with how do we translate into their language the word begat. Right? Begat, begat. It's a funny word to keep saying, but it's all through Matthew 1. So-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so and begat so-so. And they're getting really excited about that. And he's like, what gives? Why, why are you getting so excited about the word begats? And the Papua New Guineans shared, uh, would actually ask the question, do you mean these were real people? And his answer was, yes, they were real men. And they said, that's what we do. And they, they picked up a copy of their genealogy and were pointing to their genealogy and said, we thought as, as you were sharing these stories, they were just your stories. Do, do you really mean that Abraham was real? He's a real guy? 
And the translator says, yes, that's what I've been telling you. And he says, we didn't know that, but you know what? Now we believe. Now we believe that Jesus is Jesus because of the genealogy, because we see he has that history, he has roots, he belongs. So we see from this that Jesus is a real person with a real history, with roots. And we see from this also that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Look at verse 33. Uh, in verse, <clears throat> I might have misreferenced there. <clears throat> the reference to Abraham, verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham is the one promised that through his seed, all the families or nations or peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so we're seeing here that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the seed through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In verse 38, it references Adam. And we see that Jesus is the Satan-crushing offspring of Adam and Eve. In verse 31, there's reference to, to David. Remember the promise made to David? You will have a son who will reign on the throne forever and ever. Now we're seeing that Jesus is that Davidic son. He is the fulfillment of the promises to David. So as you make your way through that genealogy and mark some of those names, what you're saying and seeing is that Jesus is the one who fulfills. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and 2 Samuel 7 and, and on and on you can go and you see that Jesus is God's yes to all of God's promises. We see also that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, we see that from verse 23 where it says, the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. That's an indirect allusion to the virgin conception. Uh, when Jesus was conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, people obviously thought Joseph was his biological father, and Joseph, or I'm sorry, Luke is pointing out that no, he's not. He's conceived by the Spirit. So thus, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a philosopher. Jesus was the very Son of God. We also see that Jesus is the second Adam. Again, notice how the genealogy ends. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. But sadly, Adam was a disobedient son. He was a disobedient son. He sinned against his heavenly father. And that sin corrupted the whole of humanity. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, sin came into the world through Adam, and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned. So when Adam sinned, everyone sinned. Adam, so to speak, was driving the bus of humanity and he drove it right over the cliff. He took all of humanity with him. So now, Scripture refers to us as sons of disobedience. We're still made in God's image, but sin has ruined us and broken us and separated us from the Father. So, so what's God to do? Because Adam fails, Adam sins, Adam disobeys. And what we see here is a new Adam, a new beginning, a new son. That's the significance of Luke 3.22 when, when God the Father says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved son. That's the significance of the genealogy and the temptation is that Jesus is the true son of God. 
Jesus is, is the one who has come to redeem humanity, to create a new humanity. In other words, Jesus is the second Adam, the true Adam, the true son. Are you seeing that comparison and contrast? The first Adam was the first son of God. He sinned. He essentially said, my will be done, not your will be done. And the plague of sin uh, captured and caught all of humanity. But Jesus comes along. He's the better and true Adam. He doesn't say, my will be done. He says what? Your will be done. And he's obedient. He's the obedient son, the obedient Adam, who comes to cure us from the plague of sin. And that's why we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, in Adam all what? Die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. That's the contrast that's happening there. We're seeing Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus came to create and assemble a new humanity, new sons and daughters of God who are no longer marked by disobedience, but marked by obedience. And what's the upshot of all that? The upshot of all that is number five, the fifth thing Jesus teaches us. I know I'm throwing a lot at you this morning. The fifth thing Jesus teaches us is that he's the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. If he's the son of Adam, then he's the Savior of the world. Matthew wants to go back to Abraham because Matthew's writing primarily to the Jewish people and wants them to see that Jesus is the Davidic king, but Luke, he has bigger purposes. He drives it all the way back to Adam to show, look, Jesus is the son of Adam. That means Jesus is the Savior of the world. As the son of Adam, he does not just offer up his life as an atonement for Israel, but for all who will believe in him, both Jew and Gentile. Remember what Simeon said about him back in Luke chapter 2? I know it feels like ages ago when we were there uh, in Luke chapter 2. But Simeon said about, about Jesus when he was just eight days old that he is a light for the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. So there's Luke's emphasis on salvation for all. This is why there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And let me point out one other little tidbit while I'm on this point. Because there's a lot of attack on the scriptures, especially uh, in relation to uh, Genesis. And if it's a historical account, and many want to doubt that it's historical, many want to doubt the veracity of Genesis, Many want, to, many want to say it's a myth or a story or, or, or something along those lines. And what we want to see here, what we need to see here, is that Adam was a real man. If Adam never existed, then there is no such thing as sin. No Adam, no sin, no Savior. Yes? No Adam no Christ. So for those who want to attack the scriptures and say Genesis isn't historical, Genesis isn't true, then you're ripping out the gospel. Because Genesis teaches and Luke affirms Adam was the real son of God. And Jesus is traced all the way through to him. So you need to see that. If you're denying Adam, you're denying Christ. If you're denying Adam, you're denying salvation. No Adam, no Christ. If, if Adam isn't real, sin isn't real, Jesus isn't real. But if Jesus is real and Adam is real, sin is real and salvation is real. Evolution does not line up with the Bible. 
So that's what it teaches us about Jesus. What about us? What about you and I? What, what does the genealogy teach us about ourselves? <clears throat> Number one, it teaches us that we are all frail and dying creatures. Uh, like some of you, Val and I attended uh, the Veterans Memorial Service at Orangeville Township last week. And again, a big thank you to all those who put up those tents. Uh, it was very nice to sit under those. On a, but it was a beautiful day at the same time. Uh, but as I sat there and they give you this list of names and they read the honor call or the roll call of all the individuals who gave their lives for our nation, I was, I was quite overwhelmed and quite hit by just the reality of death. The reality that life is short. Life is frail. And, and these men, heroes, were made of dust. They're frail and dying. And that, that, list, uh, that, that list that we read at that, at that memorial service last week, and just seeing that frailness, that, humil that, that, that decay, that weakness, I think we see it in Jesus' genealogy also. I think we're reminded as we read through this that life is frail. In fact, J.C. Ryle comments how little we know of these people. They all had their joys and sorrows, their hopes and fears, their cares and troubles, their schemes and plans, like any of us. But they have all passed away from the earth and gone to their own place. And so it will be with us. We too are passing away, and soon we will be gone. Doesn't this genealogy emphasize that? Soon you will be gone. Maybe it's today you'll be gone. In fact, it, it smacks a lot of Genesis 5. Remember Genesis 5? That's actually the first genealogy in the Bible. And Genesis 5, there's this drumbeat of death. And so-and-so died, and so-and-so died, and so-and-so died. Just, just read through it, and, and you'll see this emphasis is drumbeat of death. And death reigns in Genesis 5, and death reigns in Jesus' family tree. Death reigns in Orangeville. Death reigns in you and I. Which leads us to this next point about what does it teach us about us? Not only are we weak and frail, we are sinners in need of, in need of God's grace. There's a consistent theme all the way through this genealogy, and that's apart from Jesus Christ, they're all sinners. They're all sinners, every one of them. Adam, we talked about him, he plunges the whole of humanity into sin and death. And of course, Abraham, Abraham lives in fear, and he's a liar. Noah was a drunkard. David, he's an adulterer and, he, and, and a murderer, and you can go through that list, and there's lots of sin, there's lots of skeletons in the closet as you make your way through that genealogy. It's a long line of sinful sinners, and we're seeing repeated the wages of sin is death, and that sin is the leading cause of death, and sin, like death, reigns in this genealogy, and sin reigns in Orangeville, and sin reigns in you and I but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. In this dying world, this, this weak, frail, sinful world, we are able to turn to a living Savior. We are able to, to turn to him who says in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead, behold, I'm alive forever and ever. Or Jesus who says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. So in this world, there's frailness, there's weakness, there's sin, there's death, and, and death and weakness is ruling and reigning all around us, but it doesn't have to. In Christ, the second Adam, there is life. Well, there's the story of a man named Henry Goodyear. It's, it's a crazy last name, Goodyear. Not Goodyear, there's no Y, it's just Goodyear. Uh, and he had a young niece, and his niece would often invite him to church, and one Sunday he decides to go to church uh, because of, she kept inviting him. They're probably having an invite-your-one service, and she wanted him to come out, right, just, just like we are. Uh, but Henry Goodyear goes. Uh, and much to the niece's disappointment, uh, the pastor's text that morning was Genesis chapter 5. Uh, maybe like for some of you walking in, you're like, oh my word, Pastor Andrew, you're going to preach those names, you're going to do that this morning, and you're, and you're disappointed. And hopefully you're seeing the, the truth of God's word. But anyways, the niece was very disappointed uh, that that was the text. Uh, but Goodyear uh, hears the message and walks home, and little did the niece know that with every step of her uncle's feet and every beat of his heart, all he could think about was that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. Just over, that, over and over, that drumbeat of death. And the next day, Goodyear, uh, he couldn't focus on his work, and so he went and looked for his Bible, and he read through Genesis 5 again, and that, that, that drumbeat of death that's there. And uh, he says this, quote, Now I'm living, but someday I too must die. Where will I spend eternity? And that very night, he says, he asked the Lord Jesus to forgive him and make him his child. So I just want to ask this morning, are there any murderers in our midst? Any liars? Adulterers? Cheaters? Any angry people? Thieves? Hypocrites? And we're so glad you're here. We are. We're very glad you're here. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. We have good news for you that no matter what you've done in the past, you are not irredeemable. And that Jesus, he can save you. And Jesus, he can transform you. If a liar has been saved like Abraham, you can be saved. If a murderer like David can be transformed, you can be transformed. There's hope for you. There's hope for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what your past looks like or your present might feel like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give to you a fresh start. He can forgive you. He can cleanse you. He can redeem you. He can transform you, and he will when you come to him in faith. Aren't you glad? Isn't it kind of reassuring as you read through the, the family line of, of Jesus that he comes from a broken family? The most wonderful man who ever lived comes from a broken family. Anyone here would say, my family's defunctional? I think we should all say that, right? Our family's dysfunctional. Jesus comes from a dysfunctional family. There's hope for dysfunctional families. And, and if you're as a family trying to pretend like you're not dysfunctional, we know. We know your family is dysfunctional. And again, we rejoice that you're here because Jesus Christ saves. He redeems. We're not here to be perfect. We're here to look to the perfect one. We all have skeletons. Oh, my word, we all have skeletons how we rejoice in our Savior. Maybe you've heard the joke about the guy who sent Ancestry site, if you're familiar with Ancestry site, uh, sent in some information about his family, and in return, they sent back a pack of seeds and said, we suggest you start over. <clears throat> Maybe you feel like or wish there was like a reset button where you could start over. 
I'm trying to tell you this morning from the genealogy, Jesus is better than a start over. Let your dysfunctionality run and help you run to Jesus Christ. Find your hope in him, your salvation in him. Jesus is the second Adam and he gives new life. He adopts us into his family. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So by faith in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, you can look at this genealogy and it becomes your genealogy. It becomes your family tree. Because by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a son or daughter of God. Can you say that this morning? Can you say this morning, I have God as my father because I'm trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation from my sin. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receive him. Believe in his name. Become a child of God. And as a child of God, like the rest of us, point number three, what does it teach us about ourselves? You'll start waiting. Do we have to wait on God's timing? I don't know why God waited for those thousands of years be between Adam to sending the angel to Mary. I, I don't know answers for that. I don't know why God didn't act sooner. God does, and that, that's enough. But what we learn from the genealogy is that, look, God's not in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. God's working things out perfectly in accordance to his plan and in his way. Uh, God's not in a hurry. So as we join our family by faith that's represented here in this genealogy, uh, we join them in waiting for our king. We're waiting for his return. And as we wait, we recognize the story isn't over. As we wait, we, we trust in our, our great father working out his sovereign plan. As the sons and daughters, we wait by delighting in his son. Number four, number five, I'm going to hit very quickly. Number four, what, what do we learn about ourselves Man, we need to study God's word, all of it. There's a story about a wealthy farmer in Africa who was named uh, Hafid. He's probably the richest man in Africa, again, Hafid. He owned a large farm with fertile soil, uh, hundreds if not thousands of camels and goats, orchards of dates and figs. And one day he heard about a lot of people getting richer than him because they were finding these things called diamonds. Hafid, eager to increase his fortune, actually sells all of his, all of his farm, all of his herds, all of his, his orchards. He, he places his family in the care of someone else, sets out to find that fortune. He looks all over Africa for those diamonds, only to die. In deep despair, he throws himself off a mountain and dies frustrated, broken, poor. Someone else buys his farm. And one day, out by the sand finds this weird little stone that when the sun hits it, seems to reflect and show all sorts of beautiful colors. And takes that stone and puts it on his mantle, whatever it was that he had, and someone else comes and visits a little bit later and sees it there. He's like, where'd you find that stone? And so he goes and shows them, and they unearth 
many, 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 many diamonds. So many so that it's become known as the Kimberley, the richest diamond mine in all of South Africa. <clears throat> so Hafid sold the richest diamond mine in all of Africa to go get rich. Now why do I share that? I share that to say, you are sitting on a diamond mine. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ is a diamond mine. And we might want to read that and think, well, I'm going to go read this or do this, I'm just, or I'm going to skip over that, or I'm going to skip over those names, whatever we're going to do with that. But, but I hope what you see is, no, this is a diamond mine, full of treasure, as you dig into it and, and, and think on it. I, I hope that next time you come across a list of names in Scripture, you won't pass over, but that you'll stop and you'll pray and you'll say to God something like, God, I know this is here for a reason. Help me to think on it and grow through it. Help me to dig, dig out the diamonds that are there. Help me to read and meditate on it. All of God's word is a treasure mine. Dig into God's word. Lastly, and briefly, what does this teach us about ourselves? It teaches us there is no place for racism. There is no place for racism. Why would I say that? Because Jesus is traced all the way back to who? Adam. Where does the whole human race come from? Adam. Biblically, there is no such thing as multiple races. There is one race, one blood, one savior. So to be prejudiced towards someone because their shade of skin is a little bit darker or lighter than yours, that's unacceptable. That's your relative, <laughs> ultimately speaking. As Christians especially, there is no place for racism. No place. What a text. <clears throat> Maybe you're glad I'm done with it. Maybe you wish there was more to say with it. I hope you're seeing the treasure that's in there. I hope uh, you're seeing how Jesus is our everything, that Jesus is the sum total of all that you need. Jesus identified with sinners. He can bear your sin. Jesus is fully human. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. Jesus was a real person. Adam is real. Salvation is real. Jesus is the Messiah, so he's the king who can rule your hearts. Jesus is the heir of Abraham and, and David and others, so all of God's promises are yes in him. Jesus is the son of Adam who reverses the curse of sin. Jesus is the son of God, and by trusting in him, you become the very child of God. Jesus is everything. He even rescues us from, from racism, and, and he teaches us to wait on God and, and trust him with our dysfunctional families. Jesus is everything. There is nothing that you need outside of Jesus. He's all that you need. Everything you need is found in him. So this morning you have that choice. You can trust yourself, you can trust people, or you can trust Jesus.